You're listening to Season 7 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 7.8, Artistic Temperaments, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and the ghost of Gundam Christmas future, here to show you a vision of a future that might yet come to pass. Ooh, I've seen it. Ooh, there will be more Gundam made in the future. Ooh. (laughs) And I'm Nina, new to F91, and it is frankly astonishing that this movie was ever completed at all. You're anticipating what I plan to say next week. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 704 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, Cicel, Solicitor Pirate, and SG. You keep us genki. We are coming up on the end of Season 7. Next episode, 7.9, will be our final wrap-up discussion and research for Gundam F91. Afterwards, we will take a short break for the holidays and to translate the next piece, which is an SD short, Paparu no Akatsuki, Boken Shoujo Artesia Dai Hyakusan wa Suginamu no Hanayome, Dawn of Papal Adventure Girl Artesia, Episode 103, Suginamu's Bride. More details about that in next week's episode. If you've been waiting eagerly for voting on the contest entries to get started, you don't need to wait much longer. I have gone through all the entries, uh, I've validated them, and I've created a system for voting on them. Voting is going to get started this weekend. I'll be posting a link to our Patreon. Voting is only open to patrons, but I will put up a separate link for anyone who just wants to browse through and read all of the entries. So be sure to go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon in order to see all 81 pitches for our 2022 Gundam Podcast Contest. On a related note, social media continues to be a very strange place, and we uh, continue to worry, of course, about what our social media presence is going to be like in the future. But I did want to let you all know that it is possible to follow our Patreon page, even if you don't become a patron. That way, you'll get notified whenever we post any updates, whenever we share information about contests and events. Uh, So if you want to be sure you are getting all our most important announcements right when they come out, please follow us on Patreon. And again, that is GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. This week, we are joined by animation consultant Matteo to help us break down Gundam Formula 91 on a visual, technical level and talk about some of the prominent animators who drew and eventually redrew this movie. Before that, I have a few more mini profiles of some of the voice actors. This week, the parents and a few of the crew from the space arc. Cecily's mother, Nadia, was played by Tsuboe Akiko. Tsuboe has been in the industry since 1966, when she debuted on the original Astro Boy anime. She's mostly handled small roles, and indeed has mostly played characters who are only credited as so-and-so's mother. 
but her long career playing mothers has seen her on the casts of many landmark productions. Astro Boy, of course, but also magical girl forerunner Sally the Witch. The first, second, and third iterations of the yokai-focused Gegege no Kitaro, Devilman, several versions of super robot mega franchise Mazinger. In 1974 alone, she played mother characters on Heidi, Girl of the Alps, Space Battleship Yamato, and Getter Robo. Then she was in Space Pirate Captain Harlock, Galaxy Express Three Nines, The Little Prince, Anne of Green Gables, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, Urusei Yatsura, Meisoni Koku, Saint Seiya, Dragon Ball, Crayon Shinchan, Outlaw Star. But since 2000, she has pivoted to doing narration work for live action television. As of this writing, Tsuboi is 85, but is still occasionally working. Nadia's lover and Cecily's stepfather, Theo Fairchild, was played by Oki Tamio. He also did the voice for museum curator and mobile suit maniac Roy Young. Oki was born all the way back in 1928 and passed away in 2017 at the age of 85. He was still a student during the war and then debuted in radio and TV dramas shortly after it ended. He got started in anime in 1963 on the groundbreaking mecha show Tetsujin 28 Go and frequently played older male authority figures like Section Chief Aramaki in Ghost in the Shell's various iterations or King Aston in Escaflone. But more than anime, he was a regular fixture in Japanese dubs of Hollywood productions, becoming the Japanese voice of actors like Christopher Lee, Humphrey Bogart, Peter Cushing, Cesar Romero, and Vincent Price, as well as Patrick Stewart, but only for his roles as Professor X in the live-action X-Men movies. And because I know that Nina would like to hear this, his hobby was calligraphy, and his wife was a calligraphy instructor. <laughs> yeah. Monica Arno was played by Shoji Miyoko, who passed away in 2020 at the age of 83. A stage actor, she was less prolific than the other parents, but she did appear in Heidi Girl of the Alps, Nana, and Chihayafuru. And in 2002, she turned in a career-defining performance as the present-day version of the main character in Kon Satoshi's masterpiece, Millennium Actress. Terashima Mikio played Seabook's father, Leslie Arno. Born in 1931, he passed away in 2008 at the age of 77. He got started in TV dramas like 1958's Moonlight Mask, aka Gekko Kamen, which is going to be more relevant soon, as well as the anime adaptation made in 1972. Like Tsuboi, he appeared in minor roles in a bunch of big-name productions, Ashita no Jo, Lupin III, Daitarn III, Toshio Daimos, Royal Space Force, but he also snagged the major villain role of Berg Katz on Science Ninja Team Gachaman. Terashima was also the president of the Haikyo Theater Company, and so it may be relevant that the young actress Chihara Eriko, who played Space Arc medic Minmi Edito, was a trainee at the affiliated Haikyo Training School. I wasn't able to find much about Chihara. She seems to have been most active in the mid-80s with roles in City Hunter and Esper Mami, but since 1995 she has played the role of Akachanman on the incredibly long-running anime Anpanman, alongside fellow Gundam alum Toda Keiko, the voice of Lieutenant Matilda, who plays the titular Anpanman. Chihara actually inherited that Akachanman role when the previous voice actor, Amano Yuri, temporarily retired. Amano herself is relevant here because she also played Space Arc Bridge crew member Jessica Nguro. But we'll be seeing her again in about a year for a much bigger role, so we'll leave her and the rest of the Space Arc crew to the side for now.
Welcome back to the program, Matteo. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm very happy to come back to discuss some Gundam with you. <laughs> I was actually hoping you could tell our listeners a little bit about what you've been doing in Japan. Give us an update. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, basically, I'm there as an exchange student in uh, Tokyo University, where I'm I mean, spending the year to think about what I want to do next in terms of basically research, because I want to research uh, animation, but uh, an anime, but uh, academically. So I'm spending this time to meet researchers, uh, get acquainted with uh, Japanese research uh, on an anime, stuff like that. And also trying to do uh, interviews and meet uh, anime staff people, which has kind of started, but I haven't done anything conclusive yet. But uh, Hopefully, I can get some stuff uh, Gundam-related going. I There's some people related to Sunrise that I want to try to contact. That all sounds really exciting. Thank you. Well, I'm doing my best, but yeah, hopefully it works out. And remind us all where we can find your work at the results of these interviews. Yeah, if Twitter doesn't die, you can find me there. My at uh, is uh, AnimeGaku, where you can find my blog, Animetude, where I post my individual research and I've started doing translations. Uh, from anime magazines and old interviews and stuff. And for the interviews I'm doing, uh, they are published on another blog called Full Frontal, where we publish all kinds of articles and do lots of interviews. So if you want to go check it out, please do. And we will post all of those links in the show notes for this episode. Thank you very much. <laughs> all right, let's talk about Gundam. Right here at the beginning, I'd like to ask you, among animation aficionados, does F91 have a reputation? I can't really tell, but the, uh, the image I had uh, when I first watched it, which must have been like a year ago, uh, but maybe it's the general reputation it has among anime fans, is that it's this, let's say, weird movie. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you get it, but which looks really great. Uh, so this is how I went to watch it for the first time. And I kind of had this impression uh, when I first watched it. Then revisiting it for the podcast, uh, well, my opinion really changed, as we'll discuss. Mm -hmm. As for animation fans in general, I'm not really sure. Uh, I have some Gundam animation hardcore fans, but who are so hardcore that they would probably have an opinion similar to mine, uh, mm -hmm. which is that, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, um, in the Gundam fandom, rather than the anime or animation-specific fandom, there are a couple of clips from F91 that you see shared a lot, always in the context of like, wow, this is so good, this is such good-looking Gundam. But it's always the same, like, two or three clips. <laughs> yeah, on these, like, from the colony attack scene, and, I mean, there's a shot I've seen a lot, uh, inside like a, a mobile suit cockpit, which is, yeah, really pretty, but it lasts for like five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> the other one I'm thinking of is uh, when Seabook first launches. Oh, yeah. And the, the very first time the F-91 goes out into battle, there's a really nice sequence there. As of course yeah. there would need to be, because that's why we came to see the movie. <laughs> I mean, even if, like, let's not discuss the animation and talk like, uh, I really love the, basically the coloring. Mm. Uh, especially the coloring of the clothes. The Cosmo Babylonia uniforms, especially like uh, Cecily's uniform and uh, Iron Mask's uniform, have this very specific texture on the clothes. It, it feels like velvet or something. It's really beautiful. And there's throughout the movie like an attention to lighting uh, in the background art or animation. So 
it's pretty to look at. I mean, it's striking. It's a striking film anyways, uh, visually. The colors are also very unusual for Gundam. The the colors in, say, Shars Counterattack or 0080 or SD Gundam, to pick a few things from around <laughs> the same time, look nothing like it. I can't really explain it. Like, I'm not an expert on color designers or whatever, but um, one of the things I was struck about is that this thing I mentioned about clothes, it seems to me to be directly taken from another Sunrise series, which is uh, City Hunter. Ah. Where this velvet-like sense of texture, uh, you find it, for example, in the clothes on City Hunter. I mean, it feels like F-91 is borrowing from other parts of Sunrise, so to speak. <laughs> Having looked at your notes, I think that might be foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. As you said in the previous episodes, like even if it seems like this sort of return to the past of Gundam with Yasuhiko and Okawara and everything, it doesn't feel like previous Gundams. So in that sense, it's somewhat of a success, I guess. <laughs> it does feel a bit like they were trying to walk this kind of impossible line of trying to both separate it from all these previous shows, but also give it that pedigree of being a Gundam show so that Gundam fans would watch it. Maybe I'm going to anticipate a bit on like future seasons, but right now I'm on uh, other Heisei Gundam series. Mm -hmm. So uh, right now I'm watching Gundam X. Uh, I've seen Wing and J Gundam recently. And really, it's a thing that's going to be really recurring. Like every new series at this point by F91 is asking like, okay, what do we do? in this framework, like how do we work out what it is to be a Gundam series? And so it's really interesting. So I can't, I, I can't wait to see what you'll have to say about all this. It's so interesting to see that question being asked by the people who made Gundam originally, after 10 years, asking themselves, what is this thing that we have made? What is it at its <laughs> essence? What is its core? This must have been like particularly weird for Okawara and Yasuhiko because, well, Tomino well, he had been continuously working on Gundam for some years and like he's someone really weird, but he really thinks through things. And so I think that by this point, he had really thought over and over what it was to be doing Gundam. Whereas for Yasuiko no Kawara, especially considering the history between Yasuiko and Tomino, which you recounted, like, I really wonder how we felt about this. Let's talk a bit more about the people involved. I know you told us in advance that um, by the time this had started, a lot of the people that Tomino had trained up during the Zeta, Double Zeta, and Char's Counterattack era had actually left his team. Yes. Maybe we can start by like discussing the Sunrise organization. Um, <laughs> I was hoping you would, actually. <laughs> I, I have that in my list of questions to ask you. So it's complicated, but basically, uh, I don't know how it was by the time of F-91, but... One of the important things to understand, I think, about Sunrise is that uh, it's a pretty weird studio in the sense that when it was created, it had very little in-house staff. The people who created Sunrise had come from uh, Osamu Tezuka's studio, Mushi Productions, which had bankrupted, and so they were kind of traumatized by this, and they said, okay, we don't want to repeat this, we don't want to repeat the bad business practices that happened with Tezuka, so we're going to do something super efficient. And doing something super efficient meant cutting costs everywhere possible. And so Sunrise has sort of a very unusual organization uh, where it relies a lot on freelancers. So, for example, Yasuhiko never was uh, in-house in Sunrise, 
I'm not sure Tomino was, and most of the animators we are going to talk about were freelancers or belonged to other studios who had, let's say, privileged relationships with Sunrise in the sense that they almost exclusively worked with Sunrise, but mm. weren't part of Sunrise uh, in like legal terms. And the other thing is that Sunrise itself is divided into sub-studios, uh, which we can like call divisions. By the point of F91, I don't have the exact numbers, but I think there were like seven studios in Sunrise, with each studio having more or less its own set of uh, subcontractors, collaborators, producers. So basically, it's not like they were totally isolated from each other, but each studio had its own way of working things. And Tomino, basically since Xabungle, so that's 81, 82, uh, he had been working in Studio 2. And in Studio 2, he had basically trained up uh, lots of students. Uh, so I'm especially thinking about storyboarders and episode directors, so people who had been working under him for, say, from Zabungle to Double Zeta or Charles Counterattack, that's like between five to six or seven years, mm -hmm. and who not only were used to work with him, which with someone like Tomino is probably useful like, <laughs> to know how to manage him, but had learned from his way of working. Um, like recently, I had the opportunity of uh, visiting an archive of uh, anime production materials which happened to have lots of uh, Double Zeta storyboards. And what was striking is that the storyboards, even though they weren't drawn by Tomino, uh, the style of the drawings really looked like Tomino's. <laughs> which felt like, okay, they, they even imitated him down to the way he draws. So yeah, you really have this through line. And of course, you have the animators as well. So going back to early 80s, so this is more like Ideon than Zabungle, so we're talking 1980 here, Tomino had started working with a particular studio, which is called Studio Bibo, created by an animator and designer called Tomonori Kogawa. And basically these guys started working a lot with Tomino at the time. Kitazume Hiroyuki, who became character designer from Double Zeta onwards, even though he took a big role on Zeta as well, was from Bibo. And these Bebo students really defined uh, the look of late 80s Gundam. But they scattered after Shah's counterattack. I have kind of forgotten or not really looked into the specifics of that. I know that uh, Petsu-chan, which you can find on Twitter, has researched this. But basically, if I remember correctly what I saw from his tweets, uh, Kitazume had produced an OVA for another studio, AIC, and had some debt he had to pay because of that production. And so to pay it, he went to work to AIC uh, after Charles' counterattack. And so a lot of the people used to work with him uh, in terms of animation and design kind of scattered. As for the episode directors and scriptwriters I talked about, basically they were getting more experienced. And so they were at the stage where they didn't have to just work under Tomino anymore. And so they started directing episodes on other series or directing series. They mostly worked on stuff like the uh, Brave or Eldran series, which were the super robot franchises that Sunrise was also launching at the time. So this is kind of the beginning of what I call Tomino's Days of Wandering in the 90s, where on each show or movie, he worked with a completely different team. Like this is also the time where Tomino's personal life was getting complicated, but I think it must have been difficult for him because he never had the sense of stability that he may have enjoyed uh, in the 80s. I think it's visible in the more uneven quality of 
his work in the 90s. Before we move on, I did want to comment on what you were saying about uh, a lot of the staff being contractors or freelancers brought on for particular projects. I don't know how widespread it is, but I have a cousin who is an animator who works on an extremely long-running show here in the U.S., and they're only employed during the production of a season of the show. So they'll work, you know, three months or four months on. Then they will be fired. (laughs) Then they'll be you know, unemployed, or they can go work on other projects for three or four months, and then they're hired back. Yeah, I didn't know it was that common in the U.S. Uh, Basically, in Japan, it's probably the same, like, in the U.S., but uh, in Japan, you have basically three statuses. You have being in-house, so you're basically working in the studio when you're paid a, a regular salary. You have the contractors who are basically, just like the case you mentioned, you, you sign a contract for the length of a production. So let's say you sign a contract for F91, and once the production of F91 is done, you receive your money and you go do something else. And then there's freelancers who, well, they're freelance, so they work uh, wherever they want, uh, where whenever they're available and everything. And freelance and contracted work make up the most of animators in Japan. It's always been a lot of freelancers. I do understand that uh, within anime studios, the production staff, the, the producers, tend to be the, the permanent employees. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, freelance producers also exist, which doesn't simplify things. But yeah, uh, <laughs> basically, the let's say the management staff uh, tends to be in-house, whereas large parts of the creative and technical staff uh, is outsourced, so either to other studios who themselves sometimes outsource or have their own in-house staff or to directly to freelancers, yeah. Tomino, during this wandering period that you've mentioned, the work he's putting out will vary pretty dramatically in terms of its quality, and uh, a lot of people have hypothesized that that basically comes down to which group of people he happens to be working with and how good they are at interpreting his instructions. And so it's very easy to see how losing a core group of people that you have trained to know exactly what you mean uh, and do things exactly the way you like could be difficult to deal with as a creative. I'm not really familiar with that era of Tomino uh, because basically the only works of him that I've seen after F91 are Victory and Tourne. So Mm -hmm. I don't know all the other shows he worked on, but I know some of them are pretty... uh, I don't know if controversial is the word, but (laughs) yeah, (laughs) debated. And yes, I I totally agree. Like Losing these long-time collaborators must have been sometimes pretty hard. Um, Among all of the external studios that were contracted to work on this project, uh, that Studio Dove in particular had an outsized influence. Can you talk a little bit about them? Yeah, um, I'm happy to be talking about Studio Dove. You'll meet them again because basically they animated uh, most of the Heisei Gundam series. So basically Studio Dove uh, was created in 1983 by someone who was uh, related to Sunrise because uh, so an animator, Yawata Tadashi, who had been part of uh, Mushi production, so Osamu Tezuka Studio back in the 60s, who worked with Sunrise uh, in the 70s. And the history of Dove says that one day he like couldn't work anymore, he fell ill, he was overworked and stuff. So he left Tokyo 
and went to rest in Iwaki in Japan, which is in the north in Fukushima Prefecture. So he went to like take holidays there uh, and build a new, a new life or whatever. But his animator colleagues kept calling on him. So he created <laughs> oh, no. a, yeah. Um, welcome to the anime industry. Uh, <laughs> and he created a studio there, which is Studio Dove. And Dove kept working with Sunrise uh, until it was eventually uh, absorbed by Sunrise, or rather by Bandai Namco in the late 90s, I believe. Uh, the fact that it's not in Tokyo is pretty interesting because that's not the only uh, subcontractor uh, that worked uh, with Sunrise, which was situated outside of Tokyo. The other important one, I don't think was on F91, but is called Anime R and is located in Osaka. So maybe it made like working relationships more difficult because of the distance, but having studios located outside of Tokyo was pretty exceptional at the time, and it still is in some way. Mm -hmm. And I presume that uh, because they weren't in the big city, working with them cost less money. I mean, that's a, a theory. I don't have a confirmation, but I think that would have been the case. And maybe that explains why Sunrise would have liked to work so much with them. Um, and so Dove progressively expanded. It created a studio in Korea, in the Philippines and everything. And it became a really one of the pillars, uh, one of the main subcontractors uh, for Sunrise. In the 80s, they mostly worked on stuff like Votoms, Dirty Pair and City Hunter. And by the 90s, they transitioned to work on Gundam series. The leader of that team, who worked on F91 and went on to work on future Gundam works, was uh, Nishimura Nobuyoshi, uh, so an animator who began working uh, in the early 80s in Dove. He, he spent his entire career in Dove, basically, and who, by the point of F91, probably already had the reputation of being an incredibly efficient uh, animator, because, uh, for example, when you look at his work on City Hunter, he solo animated multiple episodes. Oh, wow. And then he went to work on the Pat Labor TV series, where he would put out episodes as an animation director on a very regular basis. And when we get to like J Gundam or Gundam Wing, and especially Gundam X, for which he was character designer, basically Gundam X had only two animation teams and one of these was Nishimura's. So he basically animated half of the show. Mm -hmm. uh, so very impressive and important artist, uh, even though he's not really famous because he's not as, let's say, charismatic or showy as other animators who may have worked on other Gundams. And Nishimura himself, uh, he's credited as a uh, like an assistant or co-animation director, I believe. And one of the other things that's interesting about Nishimura is that he's active on Twitter. He's one of these animators who's very open about sharing stuff about his career. And so most of the, let's say, additional information I could find on uh, F91's production from the point of view of animation was from Nishimura's Twitter. So maybe I can get into like the, the chronology he discussed uh, about when he joined F91 and what assistant animation director means. Please do, because I have been trying to figure out what assistant animation director means in the context of this movie for some time. Well, what, animation, what assistant animation director means, I'm not quite sure. I think it's just, it just means that this is the people that we asked to help at the last minute. It's hard because we don't have very specific information on how the work was organized because you have multiple stages of the animation and sometimes having a main animation director and an assistant means that each director handles uh, the supervision of different stages 
on F91, it's hard to say. But basically, for the animation directors of the movie, uh, at first, uh, so when the movie was in its early stages and began uh, the animation process, so around uh, February uh, 1990, there was only one animation director, that was Murase Shuko who was a young artist who had begun working like in the mid-80s, I believe. He had done some character design on some Sunrise OVA, but basically he had very little experience as animation director or character designer. And he's been quite uh, self-effacing when talking about F91. He says, you know, that he ended up being the animation director basically because nobody else wanted to do it. Yeah, that, that, that doesn't surprise me. I, I don't know how they made the recruiting, but perhaps Murase was one of the only people available. It was sort of a strange bet to like take this very talented animator, but kind of unexperienced, on a project that seemingly so many things were riding on it. Mm-hmm. Maybe they took him because of his admiration or appreciation for uh, Yasuhiko's style, but I don't know how much that already played in Murase's style uh, by the point of F91. At some point in the production, Murase was deemed not fast enough because, well, as you know, the schedule was starting to get tighter and tighter. It's hard to imagine anyone being able to be the sole animation director for an entire movie in, like, less than a year. Yeah. Yeah. Especially one that it's too complex for its own good. <laughs> uh, and so a producer, I believe that would be Akasaki Yoshito, who is credited as production desk on the film, which is basically the, the person handling like on the ground the actual production and planning. Uh, so I believe Akasaki went to look for people who could assist or even replace uh, Murase. And the main person he found was Kitahara Takeo. Uh, who had been the main animation director on the City Hunter series. And the City Hunter series uh, had just completed by that point because the TV series was done. And by mid-1990, they had just completed the last film for some time, which would be uh, City Hunter Bay City Wars. So basically, he just happened to be free. And Akasaki knew him because he had been producer on City Hunter. So basically, he brought uh, Kitahara to become the new chief animation director, which on the paper looks like a good decision because Kitahara was experienced, knew what it was to handle big productions and long productions and difficult situations. So it was a good idea uh, on paper, but things didn't go well with a certain <laughs> director uh, whose name begins with a T and ends with uh, Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Was there perhaps some friction between the two? Yes, apparently. Um, <laughs> so I only have Kitahara's version, uh, which comes from an interview he made in the 1990s. Uh, no, in the early 2000s, I believe. But what he says is that he accepted uh, the work on F91 because the other side asked it for him because they were desperate and really needed, needed someone. So he agreed. He, he was reluctant, but he agreed to do it. But he didn't know anything about Gundam, and he had no experience working on mecha series. So he explicitly asked that he would only work on the characters, uh, doing the supervision on the characters, which is why Murase ended up like supervising mostly the mecha uh, in the end. But Kitahara felt uncomfortable working on this because, yeah, he didn't know Gundam, and according to him, he kept asking for guidance, and especially asked Tomino to 
like help him out and tell him how we should approach uh, this universe that he wasn't familiar with. Except that Tomino apparently didn't really want to help out and mostly criticized uh, Kitahara's work in a not very productive fashion. Mm. Basically, the way Kitahara says it, Tomino just said, okay, this is bad, but never said how Kitahara could improve it. And I don't know if there was a specific event or if Tomino crossed a line at some point or if anything happened, but at some point Kitahara left and he quit the production and said, okay, I can't do it anymore. If I see Tomino one more time, I'm going to punch him. So, <laughs> Or throw him out a window, maybe. Yeah, maybe. So I'm out. And then Akasaki and the director of Sunrise himself uh, went to Kitahara's house and begged him to please keep working on the movie because if you don't, it's not going to be completed, it's going to collapse. We need someone, so please do it. Kitahara agreed but worked from home and not from Sunrise because, yeah, if he went back to Sunrise and actually saw Tomino, things would end badly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which, as I said earlier, like in anime, there's a lot of freelancers, so it's not unusual for people to work from home, but for the main animation director to right. basically not be there on the production can be very damaging because he doesn't go to meetings, he doesn't meet the animators, he's basically just receiving drawings, he's redrawing them, sending them back, and that's all. And there's no communication between him and the rest of the team. And the main role of the animation director is to communicate with the animators. So if that doesn't happen, then the entire purpose of his presence kind of collapses. I remember, uh, I think it was a producer on 0083 who said something to the effect that there were a lot of young animators and other staffers at Sunrise who really wanted to work on Gundam, but didn't really want to work for Tomino. And so <laughs> there were a lot of people sort of jumping at the opportunity to work on 0083, to work on Gundam, and not have to work for the demon director. <laughs> yeah, that's... I guess Tomino has always been perhaps like pretty rough on his staff, but as things got worse in the 90s, Tomino himself must have been getting even more difficult to work with. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, but the fact that he already had such, uh, let's say, bad reputation by F91 is kind of worrying, I guess. <laughs> Having worked for and adjacent to bosses who have those kinds of reputations, you know, there's always a there's always a core of people who get along really well with them. And so they can have very productive, very positive teams that are just totally inaccessible to people outside of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that was the case. I feel like it's also not uncommon as somebody gets sort of further into their career and more established for them to get a little more cantankerous and a little more like stereotypically an auteur. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, totally. Especially on F91, which is basically if you look at the movies Tomino had directed until then, like the first only real movie was Shah's Counter-Attack because basically before that it was recaps or if you look at the Ideon movies, it's like redoing the ending that we couldn't do in the TV series. But then there's Shah's Counter-Attack, which is basically the first time Tomino can do a sort of real film, uh, because it, it kind of stands on its own, even though it's a sequel to Universal Century Gundam. And then you have F91, which is really, at this stage, like an original movie. So he's, he's really become a movie director. Like, finally, he can stand uh, on the same ground as, I don't know, his 
biggest rival, Hayao Miyazaki or whatever. So there must have been a lot of pride involved uh, and, and seeing everything collapse mustn't have been very easy for him either. Yes, one can only imagine the amount of stress he was under. He must have known that the production was not going very well. But what surprises me, I mean, he didn't make things easier for anybody. Um, and <laughs> I, I'm not talking about the fact that he was slow in making his storyboard, which is something that happens. I'm like, even if like the actual contents of the storyboard, like the way the movie is shot and directed, it is a level of complexity. Uh, basically, he didn't make anything easier for the animators uh, because the camera moves a lot. The movements are always very complex. There are a lot of big crowd scenes and stuff. So it seems like he didn't make any concessions for the staff and just kept rolling on his path, which is, oh yeah, we're making a movie, so this has to be really cinematic and theatrical and really impressive and everything. We're not doing TV, we have to do something more. But that in turn makes his storyboard like absolutely impossible to work with. <laughs> and it, it, it's impressive. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm probably going to like, get meaner and meaner with uh, the movie's animation as we go on, but it's still impressive that they managed to like follow up on the storyboard because they're too complicated, basically. So we've talked now about uh, Murase Shuko, Kitahara Takeo. There is a third person who is also credited as animation director, and that's Kobayashi Toshimitsu. Can you say anything about him? Kobayashi uh, is another veteran animator who was one of the few to be really used to work with Tomino since he had been a regular on those series he made in, since the 80s, and he had already been uh, assistant animation director on Shah's Counter-Attack. I presume he was brought in with uh, Kitahara because Kobayashi had also been an animator on the City Hunter movie I mentioned. When that movie was completed, just like Kitahara, he would have been free and available. So I presume that's when he was brought in. And uh, so maybe as time went by and Kitahara kind of left, Maybe Kobayashi took more importance, but I don't really know, since we don't have, like, to my knowledge, uh, his testimony or anything. And then there's a quite a large number of these assistant or co-animation directors. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier that these animators were all sort of pulled in at the last moment on an emergency basis. I, that's what I think happened. Uh, if we look at the assistant animation directors, there are one, two, three, four, five, six of them. Two of them are from Dove, uh, so that's Nishimura Nobuyoshi and Sakuma Shinichi. Uh, according to Nishimura, his first meeting for F91 was in uh, May 1990, so three or four months after the animation had begun. I presume this was roughly the same time Kitahara arrived on the production as well. Um, Dove arrived yeah, in the middle of the production. And it's important to consider that they were busy with something else because uh, both Nishimura and Sakuma were working on the Pat Labor TV series at the same time. So they were doing two things at once, which is perhaps why they were only assistants because they couldn't work full time uh, on the movie. Mm -hmm. And two other important ones are Kawamoto Toshihiro and Sano Hiroshi, who were both the most important staff members on 0083 because Kawamoto was character designer and character animation director on 0083, whereas Sano was a mecha animation director on 0083. 
We also know that the first episode of 0083 and F91 were made at the basically at the same time because, as you previously discussed, uh, the first episode of 0083 was uh, released uh, mm-hmm. alongside F91, and we also have the testimony from photography director Okui Atsushi, who says that basically he worked on both at the same time. So I presume uh, Kawamoto and Sano were kind of brought on F91 when the first episode of 0083 was completed. So I don't have a date, but it would be by the end of F91. Basically, this would be late summer, probably, uh, of 1990, uh, or even winter 1990. Especially since the only scene we have identified by one of those two, so that's by Sano, is the final fight uh, between uh, the F91 and the Rafflesia, so the very end of the movie, so probably one of the scenes that were animated last. Well, definitely would have been animated after that June meeting, after the August designs of the Rafflesia, so yeah, quite late in the production. I seem to remember somebody involved in the W83 production saying that it was a real struggle getting that first episode done in time for the December release. And I wonder if part of the reason for the struggle was because um, a significant portion of the talent was siphoned off even before that episode was finished. So really, everyone on this movie was, was working two jobs. Yeah, basically, yeah. I remember you mentioned in one of your earlier episodes how some people on the F91 staff were kind of angry at W83, like taking away resources from their own production. But that's totally unfair because it's the opposite that happened. It's <laughs> really F91, which was in such a state that it like vampirized resources from all over Sunrise and mostly from W83. It affected the entire studio. All right, we've talked quite a bit about the animators. Let's talk about the animation itself. And I'm reading from your notes and editorializing a little bit here, but you sort of say that F91 has a lot of animation, but not necessarily very good animation. Yes. Yeah, this is the point where I get nitpicky, and I hope nobody gets angry at me for this. Send all of your angry letters to Mobile Suit Breakdown, not to Mateo. This is our fault. We asked for this. <laughs> I mean, it's complicated because, of course, you can't like just say good animation and expect people to just agree, oh, yes, this is good animation, this is bad animation. These are complicated concepts. But, yeah, basically the point I would like to make is that it's not because it moves a lot that it's well animated. Because F91 does move a lot. It moves all the time, which kind of makes it exhausting and so kind of deserves it in a way uh, as a film. But even then, like, there's multiple reasons F91's animation is not good in the sense that, yeah, while it does move, uh, the movement is not particularly creative or, let's say, pioneering. And so, basically, F91, in terms of animation, feels very uh, like a very conservative work that didn't try to innovate uh, in any way, especially when you compare it to contemporary Gundam productions such as 0080 or 0083, which were really trying to push the borders of what you could do in mecha and FX animation, whereas F91 just doesn't seem to know what it's doing, basically. Yeah, I was thinking about how I felt about the animation when I first watched it. Obviously, what people like and dislike is very subjective, but a lot of what I liked was really the art. Many of the scenes that stood out to me the most had minimal animation or were even stills that I thought were particularly beautiful. 
And I had fewer moments where I was watching the animation or the movement and thinking, oh, that's really cool, or oh, <laughs> that really caught my attention. But also because it moves so much that it's hard to like pinpoint a specific impressive scene, I think. Mm. Mm -hmm. And when it does really grab your attention, um, often it's because they've done something that doesn't quite work. I, uh, I specifically remember when they have the F-91 sit up for the first time, it, it looks as though they've sped up the footage. Um, I don't know like mechanically what they've done here, but just feels janky. It yeah. feels like a live action movie where they've just like sped up the, the footage on playback. Yeah, I, I don't have the specific moment in mind, but what you say like brings to mind something that I find interesting about F-91, which made the movie harder, uh, which may sound really technical, but uh, it's interesting to discuss, which is the paper they used. So to sum up really quickly, uh, so back then TV format was square format, and so they animated on square paper. And they did that for movies as well. Uh, they animated and shot uh, movies even though they were shown in a, a letterbox format, they animated them on square paper and then they, they trimmed the drawings and the footage. So basically, when you look at anime films from the 80s, most, most of the time, like the borders of the image have actually been cut and you lose some of the visual information. Mm -hmm. One of the most infamous cases is uh, Oshi Mamoru's uh, Beautiful Dreamer. So his second film for the Urusei Yasura series, yeah, which was trimmed down and the original version is, it's impossible to find, I believe, even though the movie was shot on square paper and shown on both uh, formats. And basically, F91, they decided to avoid this and animate the film on wider paper, so on the Vista Vision paper, to really have this cinematic feel and to avoid having to cut out uh, any information. The problem is that uh, animating on wider paper totally changes the way you have to animate. Uh, let's take a simple movement as an example. Like, let's say I'm animating a movement of someone like moving his hand from, let's say, the, the right to the left. Let's say that on square paper, on the regular format, this takes uh, three drawings to do. If I'm animating on bigger paper, the space that the hand has to cover like on the paper is bigger. There's more distance to cover. So what may take like three frames on regular paper will take maybe four or five on bigger paper. Mm. Simply the size is bigger. And so this totally changes the way you have to work and this causes difficulties because first of all, you have to be aware of this. And since most of the animators of F91 had never worked on this format, they wouldn't have been. So this may have caused like some animation errors or jankiness because basically they just didn't know how to properly make use of the format they were working with. And the other thing is that if you have to make more drawings, that takes more time. And so if that takes more time, you need a longer schedule, which F91 didn't really have. <laughs> so this small, apparently innocuous decision perhaps actually had like a lot of consequences on the actual final look of the film. It does seem like a lot of the film's problems come down to just being overly ambitious, thinking like, this is a film, we're going to do it very cinematically, very properly, we're going to, we're going to, you know, upgrade everything, and then running into all kinds of problems as a result of that. It's a sort of crash course on everything that, that can go wrong from the, like, really big problems, like, obvious planning problems from the very start when 
they're not sure they're going to make it a movie or TV series and then deciding kind of on the fly. So you have these big obvious problems like this and then you have all the smaller stuff which doesn't seem important but actually is like the paper which is a very concrete technical thing but really changes the way people have to work with this. And so you have the entire thing going wrong and all of this adds up and piles up and snowballs into complete disaster. It's funny though, talking about the paper, because someone recently shared with me a um, very rare old Cantonese release of this movie. And the frame for this particular version is wider than the, the proper like Blu-ray or VHS releases from Japan. And there's more visual information on the edges. It shows enough that you can see like, instead of characters walking into frame, they simply pop into existence <laughs> on the on the side. Yeah, it's, it's the kind of stuff we don't think about as when you're not an artist where, or when, when people don't mention it, basically. Like the thing just draws itself in a way. Uh, <laughs> then you actually have people talking about this and you realize, oh yeah, it's this thing I had never thought about, but like it's, it's really technical and it's really niche, but it's actually really important. Like when you try to envision things like the artists actually do. Speaking of things that uh, I had never in my life thought of, but which are actually very important to determining the look and feel of the movie, uh, in our sort of preliminary discussions getting ready for this, you mentioned effects sete. And sete are the sort of like planning documents, the, the designs of characters and of ships and everything, so that the animators know what to draw. It had never occurred to me that there would be sete specifically for effects. So these are usually like the character uh, sete, so the character reference sheets are obviously made by the character designer. That's their job. Uh, but the effects design on mecha series like Gundam, uh, it's usually made by the mechanical animation director or designer. Sometimes there's a specific like effects reference credit or whatever, but usually it's the mechanical designer or uh, animation director who does this. It can be actually pretty important because yes, it gives a shared reference for all the animators to work from. Animators can have more freedom with tweaking, let's say, the effects animation that they may have with the characters because if the characters are off model uh, and they don't respect the reference sheets, like you really see it and it can get pretty ugly. Uh, whereas for effects, like if they look different, uh, it's not that disturbing. Every explosion is different after all. But the fact that there is that sete, which like Tom said, we hadn't thought about before, got me thinking about all the other kind of like standardizations that happen across a production, not just in character design, but when it comes time to color it in, People aren't just using any color they want at any moment. You have a set palette of colors that you're using for the production and just those colors. And in the same way, even if you want to have some variety in the effects, having a, a set of three kinds of explosion instead of any old explosion you want <laughs> uh, would probably help speed up production. Absolutely. Like for the color, there's a person in charge of that who is the color right. designer and yeah, who really has this palette and decides how to do this stuff. As for the effects, so I'm going to talk about Charles Counterattack for a minute, but it will be relevant. A, a very concrete example, like from Charles Counterattack, of how interesting and important like these uh, effects references can be, 
is that uh, on CCA they took a lot of care on the lighting and shadows uh, in space. And so, for example, when uh, when a ship fires their beam cannons, they insisted on the reference documents that you should have shadow on the spaceship so that first this would be more realistic and so that the, the light from the beam would stand out more. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's easy to speak about Charles' counterattack because, of course, the uh, reference documents were published not long ago and I acquired them. So you really see like the amount of care that went into these very, what may seem like these very uh, specific things. But the other reason why uh, Charles' counterattack is uh, relevant uh, it's not just because I want to show off my collection, but <laughs> according to Nishimura, again, what they did on F91 is that they didn't actually create their own reference uh, documents for the effects. They reused those from Charles Counterattack and 0080. Basically, they probably had no one to do it or not the time to do it, and they must have grabbed whatever was available, so the previous Gundam film and the previous Gundam OVA, and let's mix that up and do something with it. And I've actually run comparisons, especially with CCA, because we both have the film and the reference documents. Uh, And the conclusions I've reached is that they probably did not straight up copy the effects from Charles Counterattack because it's not a one-on-one match, but there are enough similarities beyond just, uh, let's say, a common Gundam aesthetic that Nishimura is saying the truth and that they probably took at least some inspiration from Charles Counterattack in the effects for F91, which is why I call it conservative. It doesn't innovate, it just mm-hmm. like takes these templates from Charles Counterattack and reworks them a bit, but not that much. So it's not exactly the same thing, but it's nothing new either. Even as a layperson, I remember watching Charles Counterattack and thinking like, wow, these beams you know, these explosions, these effects look totally different from what we've seen before. This is new and special and interesting. And F91 never has a moment like that. It always just feels like what I expect from it. Yeah. Also, considering like this effects set their thing and the production, one of the things that's interesting uh, is the colony attack scene. So the beginning of the movie, which is generally regarded to be the best part. Well, in animation terms, this is basically the part that was the first part to have been animated and is the part of the movie that Murase supervised. After this, like, 20-25 minutes mark, that's where Kitahara and the other animation directors come in. Whereas the colony attack is presumably Murase's solo work in terms of supervision. And what's interesting is that there is absolutely no uniformity in terms of effects in these, like, 20 Mm. minutes. From one shot to another, you switch to a totally different way of animating smoke, of animating explosions. Basically, each animator did what they wanted to do. I mean, that's how it feels like. And in ideal conditions, it would actually be pretty easy to identify the animators. I mean, the guys who did the explosions. I mean, if we had more knowledge of all the stuff on the movie, like all these explosions are distinctive enough that they feel unique and individual. So my theory regarding that is basically two things. The first is that Murase, as an animation director, either didn't want or couldn't correct the effects, uh, either because, yeah, he preferred to let the animators free or didn't have the time. And the other thing is that by the point this scene was animated, they didn't have uh, effects reference yet, uh, which is why each animator, like, 
improvised basically and did what they knew best. And it's a theory, but I believe it's only when Guitar Hara arrived and they kind of streamlined the production a bit more that they decided, okay, we don't have the time to make this from scratch, so we'll just reuse uh, stuff from all the production. Mm. And then the rest of the movie, yeah, there's more uniformity. Even though there are still variations, things are far more streamlined than they are on the colony attack part. While we all here agree that the opening section, the colony attack, is really good and the sort of the best feeling part of the movie, it's also one that uh, has a few what seem like, let's say, technical issues. There's a particularly infamous photography error where the cells are layered improperly so that there's a woman getting into her car and Dwight is running towards the camera and there his hand is briefly shown to be like behind her in a quite funny little mistake that was for some reason not corrected when they did all of these other corrections. But also, I think probably because the scenes are so complex and there are so many layers going on, that opening segment features a lot of um, like cell shadows. The cell shadows thing is kind of complicated because I've never known how to consider it. I've discussed it with other people and you, you can't really always assume it's a photography error. I mean, sometimes it's because the photography wasn't done properly. Sometimes it's just basically the remaster is good and so you have a level of quality which enables you to see the shadows which you wouldn't see uh, in mm. lesser qualities. but. Yes, it's always complicated. But yeah, in, in terms of that scene and F91, I, I think we can credit it to photography work being rushed and yeah, not being able to do things properly. Would they have been photographing everything on a rolling basis as scenes were completed? Or would all the animation be finished altogether uh, and then photographed altogether? That's a good question. I'm actually not that sure, but I think uh, I think it varies. Uh, I believe that for TV episodes, uh, it's all done like in one go. But for a movie like that, uh, I can't really tell. I remember with Char's Counterattack, there was a, an anecdote about them having to run the photography studio like 24 hours a day with three different teams switching in to get it all done, which to me implies that they did it all at once. But then the production of F91 was so fragmented and so unusual in so many ways that who can say what uh, whether it was done in the standard way or not. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they did it in a fragmented manner, uh, especially for that early part of the movie, which doesn't seem to have received that many corrections from the theatrical version to the final version. So I don't really know. <laughs> One of the things that struck me about some of the images you shared with us comparing the theatrical release and then the corrected version, even in that first section of the movie, is the difference in color and how in the theatrical release, a lot of the art looks very warm and yellowy. The light has that warm yellow quality that they then tried to cut back on a lot when they did the corrections. Yeah, I was wondering about wondering about that as well because I have no idea if this is just because the theatrical version that we have is in a quality and so the colors were changed because it's a bad VHS rep or if they actually recolored the entire film. Right. I tend to think it's the first option mm -hmm. because if they went so far as to recolor everything, then why not like redo the entire movie from scratch? Like, uh, <laughs> right. And given that like photography errors and animation errors uh, remained 
uh, in the final version. I think it's more a question of the theatrical version that we have access to being not very good quality. But okay. yeah, I wondered about that as well. In particular, because when I first watched the movie, I basically, I think when the characters transition from being mostly outdoors to mostly indoors, a lot of the color felt very washed out. And I wasn't sure if that was on purpose or uh, if that was sort of an error in, in how it had been put together. Seeing the these two images together of the sort of older, uh, perhaps poor quality rip of the movie made me wonder if they'd overcompensated in the other direction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, th there's a moment I'm really curious about uh, regarding this. It's basically the end of the colony attack where they're inside the, the colony, like trying to get the spaceship and everything, especially uh, Cecily and Cecily's hair because yeah. they're, they're basically in the dark and her hair looks more brown than uh, like orange, which is how it usually is. And I have no idea if this is like a big coloring mistake or if this was on purpose or if they didn't just have the right nuance uh, for like uh, orange hair uh, in a dark environment. But in these scenes, it looks really jarring and I, uh, I have no idea how to interpret it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the biggest question that I have about this corrected version is why? Why did they correct these things and not these other things? Like, there seems to be no rationale or rubric to determining what needed to get corrected and what didn't. Yeah, I have no idea, just like you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, there are some very jarring moments which were left as is. I mean, probably lack of time, but did they, did they know they wouldn't have the time and just make a set of decisions? Okay, we're going to correct this and not this. Or did they just improvise? I have no idea. One of the things I can say is that they seem to have mostly focused on correcting Seabook. Uh, He's very often off-model in the theatrical version, mm -hmm. and it's less jarring in the finished version. So they seem to have really focused on him, whereas they seem to have left out uh, Cecily, who like seems to be like the character they struggled the most with. She's the one who suffers the most from variations, let's say, in style. Um, so I think they made that decision uh, of focusing on Seabook, and then there's weirdly small stuff like uh, changing the proportions of the bodies or faces, which is important, but also sometimes just redoing the line work so that it matches uh, Yasuhiko's art a bit more. Mm -hmm. uh, which maybe if this weren't so late in Yasuhiko's career, uh, he would have done that kind of stuff himself or he would have explicitly asked for people to do it. I don't know if that was the case here, but it seems like in some cases they just wanted more of that Yasuhiko feeling, which is very hard to achieve and which they evidently weren't able to properly achieve on the theatrical version. But yeah, in general, like it's very hard or impossible to figure out like how they <laughs> did these corrections. Looking at a bunch of the examples of these these corrected shots, often it seems like the only thing that's been done is that the the characters' faces. Um, in the theatrical version were a bit too squashed. The features were a little too close together, the forehead's a little too big, the faces made a little too round, and that they just, you know, moved the eyes up a couple of centimeters. Very small proportion changes like that. And that um, lengthening of the face and the, the separating of the facial features, it, it happens so often in these corrections. 
that I'm almost wondering if they were like going through and correcting the mistakes of one specific person or something like that. Yeah, uh, it's uh, obviously they didn't have the time to reanimate uh, the entire thing, so they didn't correct uh, the movement. Uh, so they only corrected, let's say, the drawings, the faces and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other question this raises is who did these corrections? Yes. Who was, let's say, the animation director of the uh, finished version, of the corrected version? Do you have any idea? No. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to believe that it would be Kitahara because considering his history on the movie, unless they really begged him really hard, I don't think he would have wanted to stay on that movie like one minute longer than he absolutely needed to. But aside from that, it's really hard to say. I want to believe it would have been either Murase or Kobayashi, but like this is random guesses. But mm-hmm. perhaps what you said about like these features, the same features, the same kind of errors being systematically corrected, it may not be like one specific animator, but one specific animation director, perhaps Kitahara or perhaps Murase or whoever, whose work they decided to change. Mm-hmm. But yes, this correction thing is very hard to pass. Yes. Well, maybe some animator will get on Twitter and finally dish about all of this. Yeah. And we'll get the answers we crave. Too late to do the podcast any good. <laughs> because of this podcast, like I've rewatched F91 so many times that I'm actually starting to like it. Uh, <laughs> so I'm glad that it's done. It's over. I, I, I don't want to hear about this film ever again. You don't have to you don't have to like F91 anymore. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you so much for coming on to talk with us about it. Oh, it's always a pleasure. It's amazing that even after all of this study and after all of this discussion, F91 still holds so many mysteries for us. Maybe we will discover more things in the future. I hope. Or maybe we will never think about it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this would be good as well. Next time on episode 7.9, The End of the Beginning, we wrap up our research and discussion of Gundam F-91 and Civilians, a Valuable Resource. Disaster Preparedness 101. Mitsurona is cancelled. Definitely completely false rumors. Give them the finger. The mustache era is over. Mask is an Ultraman villain. The chief symbol of Cosmo Babylonia is the Golden Falcon. And the Lily Flower. The two chief symbols of Cosmo Babylonia are the Golden Falcon and the Lily Flower. And the Sun. Three! The three chief symbols of Cosmo Babylonia are the Golden Falcon, the Lily Flower, and the Sun. But what of the regal ah! lion? Which be- A new definition of new type. And another. And another. And We ran out of jokes, so I guess it's time to end the season. This is only the beginning. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is 
His Last Share of the Stars by Dr. Turtle. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. With Gundam's international popularity on the rise, there are now more opportunities to share your wrong Gundam opinions than ever before. So get out there and tell some stranger that with just a few small changes, F91 could have been a landmark achievement for animation. I mean, just for example, if it had come out in 1891 instead of 1991, it would have been completely mind-blowing. Probably would have changed the whole course of cinema. I mean, that's just a matter of one digit. Before we start, or I suppose we've already started, so... <laughs> Hello, I'm back. Great. Sorry for talking so much. <laughs> no, no problem. It's this is really exactly what we want. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know if that's what you think as well. <laughs> it is. At least for my part. I don't know what Nina thinks. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> okay. Let's see, I'm, I'm looking through your notes and my notes, and I yeah. feel like the only thing we haven't talked about is Yasa's uh, exceedingly complex line work and the overly detailed mobile suits, um, which we could or could not talk about. Um, I think we've, we've come to a good ending point. Yeah. So... In 1974 alone, she played mother characters on Heidi Girl of the Apes. Apes. Heidi Girl of the Apes. (laughs) Girl of the Apes. Planet of the Alps. Oh no, my apes. (laughs) I don't remember what the Leo constellation looks like, but I can also imagine like another take on it would be to paint like astrology diagrams all over the outside. Mm Or, um, or like paint it all in like dark blues and blacks, like space, and then put stars on it. Yep. The um, the Leo looks a bit like a cartoon <laughs> mouse. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it has Alexander and the Wind Up Mouse vibes. <laughs> you might want to get all of those out before you. <laughs> I'm trying. You know, what does it sound like I'm doing? Delaying our recording session. <laughs> Is that new patron, Sissel, like, S-I-S-E-L? Yes. Is that from something? I wonder if that's a reference to the main character from Ghost Trick. I hope it is. That's a good game. I like that game a lot. Shout out to that game. And I suppose we're, we're done with recording, yeah? I think we are. <laughs>